climate change, the evolution of religion, and why atheists have better kids. All that and more on this week's episode of Ask Science Mike. You've got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, he'll talk anyway. You've got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. It's the super sleepy edition of Ask Science Mike. I've been in Laguna Beach, California, hanging out with some friends and meeting listeners of the program. I've had a blast, but I'm exhausted. And you guys coupled that with really challenging but wonderful questions this week. So uh, hopefully I can keep it interesting. Just don't forget, I need your questions, especially you ladies. This isn't a boys' party. Hashtag Ask Science Mike. Let's get it started. Hey, Science Mike. My name is Sean. I want to thank you for all you're doing with the podcast. It's such a great resource, and I'm really happy that it's out there. Uh, My question is in regards to the evolutionary origins of religion. I've been working through a book recently called The Faith Instinct by Nicholas Wade, where he talks about religion being an actual part of natural selection and religion causing tribes and peoples to have greater social cohesion and be able to survive more so than their counterparts. Lays out a very detailed case, and I was wondering what you thought about that, if you would agree with that, or would you subscribe more to a a cultural cause for religion and how you relate this to your understanding of the Bible. Um, any, Any of your thoughts on that would be great. Thanks so much. So first of all, let's take one part of that question about is it cultural or is it evolved? Culture is evolved. There's a lot of misunderstandings about uh, evolution and the theory of natural selection. And first of all, I have to tell you, every single human being is an evolutionist. Everyone. Everyone believes in evolution because evolution is just change. It's all evolution is. Anything that changes evolves. The controversy is over this idea of natural selection, that there are pressures that reward or penalize different adaptations. So the engine of biological evolution is the gene. Uh, You have these bits of digital information encoded in your DNA, and they can get scrambled when people sexually reproduce. So you can have little mutations, little flips. Most of those mutations are benign. They may not even express in an organism. Uh, But then the next most common thing would be Uh, adaptations that are uh, negative. They reduce the likelihood that an organism can reproduce. And so they get weeded out over time because of a slightly or dramatically lower statistical likelihood of reproduction. And then the most rare type of mutation at all is the beneficial mutation, the thing that is new and actually helps a species survive better. That's biological natural selection, but then these biologies express themselves behaviorally. So it's not just a difference in your physicality. It can be a primate that genetically is a little more or less likely to respond to stimulus through anger. That could either create like an alpha chimp, or if you are very angry and small, it creates a dead chimp, right? 
when you talk about humans, because of language and because of our very, very large brains, we introduce a whole new level of selection pressure uh, in sociological information called memes. Our memes matter. Uh, a meme is an idea or belief that self-propagates in the same way that a gene is a piece of biological information that self-replicates. So you can imagine that at some point, a human male had the idea that he might hold the door open for a human female. And that human male had a higher likelihood to pass on his genes as a result. And the next thing you know is human males all over are opening doors for women without being told they should do so. That is mimetic evolution. So there is no divide between a cultural development of religion and an evolutionary development of religion. In both cases, different behaviors and different beliefs increase the ability for an organism to adapt to the environment. Religion is absolutely a selection pressure. Let's think about where it came from. We're a species that is aware that we exist and we're aware that we'll die and we're aware that there are things that we do not know. So religion likely began as this coping mechanism. We saw the elders in our tribe die. We saw the hunters be mauled and we could mourn. We could grieve. We could understand that they stopped and we're still going. And one day we too will stop. And at the same time, we also saw that there were these forces in the world that we could not control but influenced us. If the rains came, we had plenty. If they did not, we starved. If the rains came too much, our little tribe got washed away. And in that model, you had these shamans who could interpret the forces. They could understand why things were happening. They could create prescriptive actions to appease them. And that created oral law or oral traditions where there were codes that you had to obey in order to make the gods happy. Over time, humans learned to write their thoughts down, and this amplified this tribal religion into a much larger organized system that included sacred texts. We see that cultures that rally around these central ideas together have a cohesion that can allow them to outcompete other cultures. Now, is this a bad thing or a good thing? Well, when religion is authoritarian, it's bad. It can trample out individual liberty. It can be oppressive. It can be dangerous. Um, and so even though it might help you in the short term, you know, some organized shared values are progress over barbarism. An eye for an eye is better than if you get one of mine, I'll burn down your town. It's progress. Um, but ultimately, where we're at now is the reason there's this reaction to religion that's negative in society is we're so aware of the downside, the bad things. We've seen too many ISIS. We've seen too many um, people saying, well, I don't, you know, they can't get married because of what this book says. And we see the harm to human life. But religion evolves. <laughs> the memes that power our belief in God change and mutate over time. Now, fundamentalists freak out when I say that, but the history of it is pretty clear. It's, it's abundantly obvious. I hate, to, I hate to be so blanketed with a term, but uh, it's just, if you look at history, it's very clear the way we understand and relate to God has changed over time. So the question is, as we consider the meme of religion, is it possible to approach a way of understanding God that increases human flourishing? that increases cooperation, that encourages empathy, and encourages compassion. And I would say absolutely, because memes matter. 
there's an idea that can help you understand a little more about the evolution and development of religion alongside human consciousness called Spiral Dynamics. We talked about it on the Liturgist podcast, and I'll include a link to that episode in the show notes on AskScienceMike.com. Hey, Mike. Not shy, just don't use Twitter. It's a bit of information overload for me. So I've gotten sucked into reading up on client science a ton lately. Turns out the science of these issues is buried under ridiculous layers of social, religious, political nonsense that completely ruins the discussion of what's actually going on and what we should do about it. Given your skills and experience sorting through scientific issues, what are your thoughts on this one? Bonus question, how do you feel the argument that if we have a perfect creation from God, how could humans hurt it? Thanks. My thoughts on climate change. Uh, Yes, climate change is happening. Overwhelmingly, yes. Humans are causing it. Absolutely. This is such good science. Why do people freak out so much? Because human beings believe things as a function of social identity. If you consider yourself a conservative religious person or a Republican, part of the cognitive framework that creates that position is agreement over the state of the earth and the role humans play in the planet's experience, okay? It's not a lack of evidence that keeps people from believing in climate change. It's social identity. That said, let's look at some science because they do call me Science Mike. The earth is warming. The most dramatic warming we have on the record has occurred since the 1970s, and 20 of the warmest years have happened since 1981. Not only that, (laughs) 10 of the warmest years on the record have occurred in the last 12 years. And this is even though the 2000s had a solar output decline. The sun sent us a little bit less energy. Regardless of that, surface temperatures on the planet are still going up. Our oceans are warming. Now that's most of the surface of the planet. And the oceans are getting warmer. They're rising. Now first of all, water as it heats expands. That's that's a, a property of our good friend H2O. But even more terrifying to me is the oceans are acidifying. They're interacting with the CO2 increase in the atmosphere and creating acid in the oceans. That's really damaging to wildlife. The ice sheets and glaciers on this planet are shrinking. Now they have a growth and retreat cycle every year with summer and winter. But the fact is every year they're smaller is smaller and they're bigger is smaller than the previous year. Most convincing of all to me is the fact that carbon levels in our atmosphere are the highest that they've been in 650,000 years. Now you may wonder how we measure atmospheric carbon Without a time machine, we tap into ice. So as ice melts and refreezes every year, it captures little bubbles of the atmosphere. And using glaciers, using other deposits, we can travel back in time and sample the ancient atmosphere. And when we see that, there's been a spike that coincides with industrialization. So suddenly you have this giant spike in carbon higher than 650,000 years, a.k.a. a really long time, that coincides with human activity. And here's the deal. Greenhouse gases are a big, big deal. Look at Venus. Venus is farther from the sun than Mercury, and yet it's much, much hotter. 
And the biggest difference between Mercury and Venus's atmosphere is very high levels of what? Carbon dioxide. So it's completely uncontroversial to me that climate change is real and happening. Now, the two meta-narratives in our society are, one, climate change is not happening, which is wrong, and number two, that climate change is happening so dramatically that we're doomed, which is wrong. Uh, you may hear it said that, you know, we could have a runaway greenhouse effect thanks to methane coming out of the polar ice caps and polar lakes uh, and tundra melt, that we could have calamities in the next 25 years or four years or whatever. The fact is what we're talking about is things get really difficult for human civilization over the next couple of centuries. Now, we do have massive species die off right now, and climate change is a factor there. It's not as big a factor as uh, habitat destruction and other forms of overfishing, things like this that are really hurting the ecosystem. But here's the deal. You, yes, you can make a difference. What can you do? Number one, you can use less electricity. Most electricity is produced by coal. So if every month you took an incandescent light bulb and replaced it with an LED light bulb, over time, you'd cut your energy consumption. And oh, by the way, you'd save money. You can check your tire pressure. You can change your oil filter. Those two things alone will improve your fuel economy when you do them regularly. And guess what that's going to do? It's going to save you money. Now, the other thing is an absolutely enormous amount of carbon dioxide is produced in agriculture, growing meat. Not only that, cows fart a lot. And that produces methane. And methane is a potent greenhouse gas. Each cow can fill a 55-gallon drum with methane every two hours. That's a phenomenal amount of greenhouse gas. Now, methane breaks down pretty quickly in the atmosphere, but it's still contributing. Methane is, is a more potent greenhouse gas than CO2. So what if you reduce the amount of meat you eat? I'm not even talking about going vegetarian. Pick a day a week and don't eat meat. I do Meatless Monday. Eat smaller portions. And guess what? If you eat less meat, if you eat less animal protein, you're going to be healthier. Most Americans eat way too much animal protein. Now, the bonus question. There are some people who say, because of an interpretation of the Bible, that we can't affect this planet. Oddly enough, <laughs> in the very beginning of the Bible, if you read it literally, the Bible tells us that Adam and Eve ate from a tree and in doing so changed creation. A literal reading of Genesis tells us that God allows human agency to have consequence for the natural world. So this narrative that humans can't affect the planet is unbiblical no matter how you read the Bible. We have a responsibility to this world. We are the only species that can make reasoned decisions based on an understanding. God gave us a gift the question is, what are we going to do with that gift? And I will hope that you would join me in increasing shalom and bringing God's good gift to this earth by protecting our climate. Hey, Science Mike, this is Jacob from Denver, Colorado. 
first off, love what you're doing. I think it's great that we have a place to openly discuss these hard questions of our faith. So my question is in regards to you being a mystic. So with what you believe, correct me if I'm wrong, the first couple chapters of Genesis are a mythical account. So in terms of not being factual, but still being true in a sense of who God is and creating everything. My question in regards to that is how does the rest of the Bible not fall apart when you believe a mythical account of some of these stories? So the big issue I'm having is is how can we believe that these earlier stories were were myths and then you come to the story of Jesus. How do we know that, you know, Jesus was a real person, was a real person that died for our sin, was God in the flesh? How can we understand that as true and regard other stories in the Bible as not true? I hope this makes sense. Really appreciate it. Thanks. So let's start with uh, mysticism versus mythic. Mystic and mythic are two different ideas. I am a mystic because I believe that although language can point to God, it cannot contain or accurately describe God. Anytime we talk about God, we are using metaphor if you are a mystic. So I am a mystic. A guy named Richard Rohr would be a mystic. If you believe parts of the Bible are mythical, that has nothing to do necessarily with mysticism. Uh, my friend Pete Enns believes that there's mythic content to the Bible, but to my knowledge, Pete Enns is not a mystic, okay? So all you're saying is that when you read the Bible, that there's these different reference frames that you have, uh, to use some Greek ideas, logos and mythos. You have some things that are meant kind of factually and some things that are meant thematically, okay? So I say often that I think a lot of Genesis or even the Torah is mythical in nature. I don't think there was ever a global flood, for example. That doesn't mean I think those scriptures are worthless. And I don't want to sound like a broken record for the frequent listeners of the program, but uh, this point comes up so often it must need repeating. These stories teach me things about how mankind understands God and how mankind struggles for meaning, and how people thousands of years ago tried to understand and serve the same God that I try to understand and to serve. And so if archaeological evidence shows me that some story in the Old Testament does not have deep historical basis, it's actually freeing. It means I don't have to be afraid of science. I don't have to be afraid of archaeology. I can just appreciate the gift of wisdom that the scriptures offer me. But then we get to the New Testament, and people get much more nervous about mythic ideas. Why? Because our faith rests on Jesus. And it rests not only on Jesus, but on a specific part of the life of Jesus. And that's his resurrection. So the question is, does the New Testament contain mythic themes. Well, I think good scholarship would tell us absolutely that the authors of the Gospels did not write without an agenda. They were trying to explain and demonstrate the divinity of Christ to a specific audience. And the different Gospels bear the mark of their different audiences. <laughs> it's not a bad thing. 
how do we know Jesus is real? How do we know Jesus was a real person? Anthropology, archaeology. There is not any great academic controversy over the idea that Jesus was a real person. We have more historical evidence for Jesus as a person than we do for Alexander the Great, but nobody's arguing that Alexander the Great isn't real. The controversy is over the resurrection. And guess what? We can't prove it. We can't even get close to proving it. Uh, Scientifically, it's a weak belief. So why in the heck does science Mike believe Jesus rose from the dead? Because the cross is a symbol of God reconciling humanity to himself. And the resurrection is a sign of the victory of God over death and chaos and all the things that keep us up at night. And I don't have a scientific basis for my faith. Instead, I have experiences with God. It is when I contemplate a risen Christ that God moves in my life. And when it comes to Jesus, I have more questions than I have answers. And that sounds a lot like the disciples in the Gospels. According to those accounts, they were there and they questioned what God incarnate meant in the presence of Christ. They certainly questioned it as Jesus hung on a cross in those accounts. But guess what? When Jesus rose again and then ascended, they had more questions and not less. Our faith is not an exercise in certainty or empiricism. Our faith is an exploration of the mystery of a universe that emerged from that which was formless and void. All you have to do is follow. You don't have to understand. Jesus and God is a really lame puzzle. There's no satisfaction in trying to make all these pieces fit together. Instead, God is an experience. God is something that moves us, that changes us, and that grows us. And Christ shows us how to serve and to follow this God. That's why we call it faith. There was a Huffington Post article a couple weeks ago that said that kids who were raised in non-religious homes ended up better off. They were more empathetic, more inclusive, more understanding. It looked to me like they were really picking certain kinds of religious homes, because I know at least in my home we try and raise our kids to have all those attributes as l- along with it, their faith. But uh, I was just wondering what your thoughts on the benefits and uh, dangers of raising kids in religious home versus non-religious home. Thanks. Appreciate what you're doing. I'm not surprised at all that that study found that because there is a seed of insight there. Let's talk about something first, though. Study methodology is important. There's factors you have to adjust for anytime you do a sociological study. And that's why you usually have to assemble a lot of studies that find similar conclusions in order to create new movements in the sciences. For example, atheism and secularism are highly associated with high education levels and relatively high levels of affluence. You have to learn a lot and have money to be an atheist. It's like a non-belief is a luxury. Now, why is that? You have to have the time and space to deconstruct things 
and you have to have the personal autonomy to challenge conventions, right? If you are struggling at the poverty level, you don't have time to contemplate whether God is real or overturn tables about social convention. You just want to make sure you and your kids get to eat. So if this study didn't adjust for the fact that uh, non-religious homes are going to have much higher education levels and much higher income levels than the general population or the religious population, we have a bias in the study. Uh, I couldn't get access to the actual study, only write-ups in the press, so I can't tell you about that methodology. I would love to. I can't. But what's the germ of truth? Secular morality is based on the golden rule. You do unto others as you would like them to do unto you. Secular ethics are reasoned and not dictated. You're not doing something because God told you to. You're doing something because you believe it is right. And you make decisions about what is right based on the liberty of human consent, meaning you don't violate people's ability to make choice, and you don't cause suffering to other people. Those are the metrics of ethical discussions in secularism. Why would non-religious children be ethical, which studies have shown? They're less likely to go to prison, just like their parents. They're less likely to commit crimes. They have higher success in marriage. The best group at uh, marriage in this country is uh, atheists and secularists living in the Northeast. And the highest divorce group and the highest rates of marital infidelity are in the religious Southeast. That's just how the math breaks out, folks. And it's because atheism and secularism is encouraging personal autonomy. It's encouraging uh, positions based on reason. And it's definitely promoting high degrees of empathy. That does not mean religion is bad for children. It means some forms of religion aren't necessarily really good at driving positive change in human behaviors. Okay, Authoritarianism isn't healthy for human beings. It just isn't. Because I said so is a terrible response to why. Uh, Now, at some very young ages in children, they have to understand that there's parental authority. But as children mature, that maturity should be rewarded with greater freedom and greater dialogue. And personal autonomy, personal liberty, and accountability matter in the way that humans develop cognitively. Also, prohibition, just saying something's absolutely forbidden, is an awful way to change human behavior. Prohibition tends to drive taboo and fetish. We don't drink in this home tends to produce closeted alcoholics. You can look at the sociological data. We are an abstinence-only family tends to drive higher rates of teen pregnancy, higher rates of oral and anal sex, higher rates of uh, sexually transmitted infections, and there's a correlation between pornography consumption and religiosity, right? So there's, there's a meta-ethic in here. There's a story. There's something we can learn. As religious people, the why matters. Knowing why we do something is important. Understanding the heart of God in Scripture is just as important as understanding the Scripture. And so I actually think that secularism and atheism in modern society provide a valuable service. They hold the mirror up to religion and show us not only our strengths, but also our weaknesses the places where we're taking dogma and using it to destroy instead of to build. So when you look at how to raise your children, don't simply look at what the tradition is, but look at the outcome. Always be self-evaluating. And the best thing you can do 
as a parent is foster trust-filled, honest relationships. Reward questions don't penalize them. Incentivize good behavior. Uh, And in many ways, parent like an atheist. That puts another episode of Ask Science Mike on the books. Uh, Despite the fact that I'm in a beautiful home overlooking the uh, mountains and beach in Laguna Beach, California, uh, there's also a dog that really hated us recording, so I apologize for that in the show. It was probably my just incredibly manly voice that intimidated him and he wanted to chase away an an alpha male. I understand, you know, makes sense to me. Uh, Here's the deal, folks. Uh, Getting tons of questions. I appreciate it. Really good questions, too. I still would like to hear more recorded questions from women. (laughs) Uh, We need to push back on the, the, the stereotype that science and technology and engineering and math are male disciplines, right? Let's, uh, Let's be all about girl power on Ask Science Mike. Uh, now, you can ask questions by using the hashtag Ask Science Mike on Twitter, SoundCloud, or YouTube. If that's too confusing or weird, no big deal. Just go to AskScienceMike.com, scroll down to the bottom of the page, and you can record a question right there, uh, either on your computer or even on your iPhone. It's really, really easy. You can also submit a question via email there. So if you have an anonymous question or you really don't like to hear the sound of your own voice, something I frankly can't empathize with, you know, we'd love to hear your emailed questions. But I do get hundreds of email questions a week and I get a handful of audio questions. So audio questions are the easiest way to get on the program. Now, Ask Science Mike is listener supported. You can help create these open, honest conversations about science and faith. You can learn more by going to AskScienceMike.com. You'll see a link to our sponsor page. You can see how to get involved. And listen, every single dollar helps. A buck a month is a big deal. You can cancel or change a pledge at any time. And the people who choose to support the program and they make it possible, they get early access to the show. They get to pick the questions. They can even add their own questions or be mentioned by name on the program as an executive producer. Ask Science Mike is produced by Greg Nordine, who's actually in the room for once. So that's been a lot of fun. But Greg does a great job on the show. And I've got to say, this is like my most favorite episode to record. This is so much easier because he's pressing all the buttons. And our theme song is by my good buddy, Jeff Bodifer. If you have a podcast and need music, he's your guy. Links to to additional information for every question on the program is on AskScienceMike.com. You can also find Greg and Jeb on Twitter. Guys, I'll see you next week.